This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. This afternoon, I'm going to talk about uh, a subject having to do with the intersection of politics uh, and morality. And I call the lecture Politics and the Problem of Moral Relativism. So let me explain what I, what I mean by that. What, what is the problem of moral relativism? So you should all have a study guide. I still am kind of old fashioned. I don't have PowerPoint. I just have, I have a bias towards the physical. So if the purpose of politics is to advance the common good, but relativism says there is no common good, then how is it possible to have a political regime? So I want to, to get to that, to, to try to answer the, the question, uh, I'm going to take us on a circuitous route. <laughs> We're going to begin with just an overview of what is moral relativism and why people are moral, why are people moral relativists? And then take us into the idea of natural law, which is found in the work of, of Thomas Aquinas. So let's begin with what I have here are, I list here some moral rules. And I'm gonna just go over them. Love your neighbor as yourself. Thou shall not commit adultery. Do not intentionally kill the innocent. Do not take what is not yours without permission. Parents ought to care for their infant children. Shun ignorance and try to live at peace with your neighbors. One ought not to rape anyone. Now, if you believe that these moral rules and perhaps others that I haven't mentioned ought to be obeyed by everyone, regardless of time, place, or culture, then you are a moral objectivist. That is, you believe that there's such a thing as objective morality that human beings can know. On the other hand, if you believe that morality depends exclusively on one's time, place, or culture, that there are no universal moral obje objective morality that transcends society and circumstance, then you are a moral relativist. Now, you don't deny that there are moral rules, but what you believe is that these rules are nothing more than one's own society's ethical code, which may be different, but no worse or better than the ethical code of another society. So you believe that morality is more like the rules of etiquette than it is like mathematics. If you are a moral objectivist, you, your intuitions are the reverse, that morality is more like mathematics than it is like the rules of etiquette. That's not a perfect analogy. Math is obviously different. Uh, and that, in fact, the only re analogy only work when it's something different. Now, why would someone be a moral relativist? So what I want to go over now are a couple of arguments that are often used to defend moral relativism. And I want to make a, I want to show you why it's not an unattractive position. You know, one of the mistakes I think a lot of us make, especially in this day and age when we're so polarized politically, it sometimes is difficult to sort of summon the imagination as to why someone would believe something that you consider to be totally ridiculous. Uh, and I think that relativism is, in a sense, not the correct view. And I think there's a lot of holes in relativism. But what I want to do is to sort of show you why people are drawn to it. Why is it that people are relativists? 
And what I want to argue is that the very things that draw people to relativism are actually inconsistent with relativism. So let's look at uh, some, of the, uh, some of the arguments. So I, I list here uh, two main reasons why people are relativists. Uh, there's just too much diversity on moral issues, both in and across cultures. And second, it is intolerant to believe that one's moral view is universally true and one ought not to be intolerant. And so the first argument, the first type of argument is what I call the argument from disagreement. And the second is the argument from tolerance. So let's first go over the argument from disagreement. If you look around, not only in the United States, but throughout the world and throughout history, there are an array of questions over which sincere citizens hold contrary views. We can almost recite them by heart. Abortion, marriage, critical race theory, physician-assisted suicide, religious liberty, animal rights. And internationally, it's no different. While some cultures practice polygamy and prohibit the killing and eating of cattle, to cite but two examples, other cultures practice monogamy and open up steak joints. But not only is there disagreement in the present across space, there's disagreement across time. Think of all the civilizations throughout history that thought it was perfectly permissible to enslave fellow citizens, fellow human beings, torture heretics, or rape and pillage conquered nations. Now, given the wide variety of moral opinions and practices across space and time, it's easy to see why someone would be a moral relativist. It should not surprise us then that two of the most widely read academic defenses of moral relativism by social scientists Ruth Benedict and William Graham Sumner appeal to the diversity to this diversity in making their cases. They essentially argue that because there is wide disagreement on moral beliefs and practices, there is no universal objective morality, and thus moral relativism is true. Now, it seems on the surface that this is an impressive argument, and, and it, it is on one level. Uh, it's an appeal to sort of empirical facts about the way in which civilizations and individuals have thought about moral questions. I think it's a weak argument. <laughs> and I just want to go over some of the, the problems with the argument. First, first problem is that is really a matter of simple logic. The fact of moral disagreement does not entail moral relativism, just as the fact of disagreement over the shape of the earth does not entail that the earth has no shape. Now, perhaps some cultures and individuals have gotten morality wrong, which is something we all down deep already believe. Who, for example, would say that the Nazis did to the Jewish people was morally permissible because their culture said it was right, or that racial segregation as once practiced in the Southern United States was not immoral because the society at the time believed it was okay. Second problem with this, the disagreement argument, is in order for the argument from disagreement to work, the moral relativist must assume this proposition. Whenever there is disagreement on any issue, X, the correct moral position on X, you can put sort of put anything in for X, there's no universal objective truth on the matter. 
Now, suppose we say in response, I disagree with the proposition that whenever there is disagreement on any issue, there is no universal objective truth on the matter. So now you've announced your disagreement with the proposition that whenever there's disagreement on a matter, there is no objective truth. And now you have a reason to discard that proposition. It's what is called a self-refuting claim. That is, uh, what's a self-refuting claim? Something like, don't believe anything I say, or my brother's an only child. Well, he does believe it. Uh, or you know, supposing I had a shirt that said, the statement on the back of the shirt is false. And in the back of the shirt, it said, the statement on the front of the shirt is true. That's self-refutation. Now, it could be, this doesn't refute relativism, right? It could very well be that there is moral disagreement and there is, there is no objective morality. I don't believe that's the case. But the mere fact of disagreement in and of itself, or even the proposition that whenever there's disagreement, there's no right answer, simply doesn't follow. And secondly, it also is kind of an odd proposition, right? You can simply announce that you disagree with it, and now you have disagreement about something, and that's a reason to reject it. Third problem with the argument from disagreement is that it's overrated. <laughs> disagreement is overrated. So let's, let's, what do we mean by that? Well, take, for example, the issue of abortion. Although it's true that pro-lifers and pro-choicers disagree on its morality, they do not disagree on the moral principle that it is wrong to intentionally kill innocent persons. What they disagree on is what counts as a person or how we should understand the meaning of innocence. Defenders of abortion choice typically argue that, that the, either the fetus, though genetically a human being, is not morally a person during most, if not all, of its gestation, or that the fetus, though morally a person, is not technically innocent if it is trespassing in the, in the mother's body without her consent. There's kind of two typical kinds of arguments that people make to support abortion rights. One argument says the fetus is in fact a human being, it's genetically human, it's an individual living organism of the human species, but it hasn't matured enough to achieve certain uh, properties that we identify with persons that have moral status. So the ability to reason, the ability to communicate, uh, the ability to have a self-concept, uh, the idea that one has a right to life, these uh, unborn human beings do not have, and therefore they're not persons. Now, it's a, it's a view I disagree with and have argued against it, but understand what's going on here. The defender of abortion rights actually agrees with the pro-lifer in the moral principle <laughs> that it is wrong to kill persons without justification. And realizing that, they come up with a justification for why, or an argument as to why fetuses are not full-fledged members of the human community. So it isn't over the moral principle, it's over some metaphysical uh, account of what it means to be a human being or what it means to have moral status. The other kind of argument that you hear, uh, it's not as dominant in the literature, but it's one in which uh, the uh, defender of abortion rights grants for the sake of argument the fetus is a person and then argues that even if it is a person, abortion is still justified uh, in the same sense that uh, someone can't like use your kidney without your consent. You know, there's a, 
several illustrations that have been used over the years by uh, a couple of philosophers who defended this view. The most famous is one defended by Judith Jarvis Thompson, a professor for years at MIT. And she says, imagine that you are, uh, you wake up one morning uh, and you're connected to this your body has tubes in it and you're connected to this contraption, which has tubes on the other sides that are connected to this world-class violinist who needs to use your kidneys. And the Society of Music Lovers canvassed the entire world and all the medical records. And they found that you and you alone can, uh, has, the, has the right blood type to sustain the life of this violinist. So the doctor walks in or hospital director walks in and says, look, I know you didn't consent to this, but you only have to be hooked up for nine months. And so if uh, you unplug yourself from this machine, the violinist will die. Do you have a right to unplug yourself? And Thompson is relying on that you're gonna say yes. Well, so even if the fetus is a person, it has no right to use its mother's body without her consent. Again, it's an argument that I think is flawed. I've written several articles and book chapters critical of it, uh, but you understand what's going on here is that Thompson recognizes the principle that it is wrong to intentionally kill innocent persons, but she wants to say that the fetus is not technically innocent, right? Uh, that it, even if it had, um, you know, we, we, you know, to use a kind of fanciful example, Supposing somebody came at you uh, with a gun and you knew that they were hypnotized to kill you, you technically be innocent, but you still have a right to defend yourself, right? So, so that's, the, uh, that's the idea that Thompson is trying to capture here. Here's the point that even though on an issue in which there's such deep disagreement on abortion, you still have common moral principles shared between both positions. So if other, other sorts of examples, uh, let's say you can, uh, let's say debates about marriage, physician assisted suicide, or the recent debates about school curricula and critical race theory, all those issues or all the, the factions uh, in those debates typically try to justify their positions by appealing to the exact same moral goods. Fairness, justice, relief of suffering, love, and protection of the vulnerable. They understand that in order to justify their view, they're going to have to appeal to some moral principles that seem to be universally accepted in one way or another. This is why um, the Catholic Church teaches that even though objective morality is known by all, it is, quote, and this is a quote from the Catechism, it is not perceived by everyone clearly and immediately. In the present situation, sinful man needs grace and revelation so moral and religious truths may be known by everyone with facility, with firm certainty, and with no admixture of error, unquote. That is the recognition that even though, according to the church, that everyone sort of has a, a rudimentary awareness of the moral law, it's not always clear, right? We can be swayed or moved by emotions, by prejudices and biases, right? Which affects the way we apply the moral law. But that doesn't mean there is no moral law. It just means that human beings are a particular sort of creature. We are rational animals. We're rational, we have reason, but we also are animals in the sense that we are organisms that are moved by emotions and passions. 
Right? Think about, that's why we have a whole set of crimes called crimes of passion. Right? The guy that in a, in a moment of rage kills somebody still knows murder is wrong. <laughs> right? And he may try to justify it. You know, but the attempt to justify it means he knows. There's a movie from, it's been so long since I've seen it, called The Mission. Uh, you guys have probably not, with Robert De Niro. And there's a scene in there where um, there's a Portuguese admiral who is trying to justify the enslavement of the indigenous people of South America. And there's a Catholic priest in the debate, and he says, they have souls. And the admiral says, no, they don't. And of course, the, there's a recognition that, the, that if they are in fact full-fledged members of the human community, then they ought to be treated with the same care and respect we treat other human beings. So to rationalize his oppression, he has to dehumanize his victim. That's a clear recognition of the moral principle. Fourth problem with um, the argument from disagreement, uh, it leads to absurd consequences. So if moral relativism is correct, that there is no universal objective morality, then it is not wrong everywhere and always to rape another person, intentionally kill the innocent, torture children for fun, judge Mother Teresa as no better than Hitler, and abandon one's infant offspring to the elements if one finds them inconvenient. So here the attempt is to sort of appeal to people's sort of visceral intuitions, right? If you accept this as a principle, it's gonna to lead to these things. Now, of course, people can bite the bullet, right? But typically people don't, right? Because there's a recognition that these things are so awful. <laughs> and wrong, that to acquiesce to relativism means to tacitly approve of them is to sort of undermine everything else that one believes. There's another aspect of this, um, this kind of absurd consequence. So, so one, of the, one of the things that, uh, about absurd consequences that, uh, is that sometimes when, we, when somebody like asserts a principle to us, the mistake I think a lot of times that people make is, is that they, they don't, they, 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 even if they get less absurd consequences or counterintuitive consequences, they feel dumbfounded, <laughs> right? So, so I, this is, I, let's say, let's use a, a fanciful example. Supposing you're at a, uh, supposing you're married and you go to a marriage encounter retreat. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those. I was at one of them in January of 1990 with my wife during football season, and it was on a Sunday. And I had to write down my feelings in a blue book. And it was such a lovely experience. No. <laughs> Supposing you're at a marriage encounter retreat and the speaker says, I want to lay down some principles about what a good marriage is. And he begins by saying, a good wife always washes her husband's socks by hand. Now, what do you do? Do you say, wow, my wife's not good, or do you say, I have a good wife and she doesn't do that, so that principle must be wrong. <laughs> In other words, the key here is to rely on what you already know <laughs> rather than letting the, the person who is saying that this is the truth sort of putting you in a position of being dumbfounded. That is to, oh, I have to figure out a way to, uh, to justify the goodness of my wife while at the same time not rejecting the principle. Well, reject the principle, <laughs> right? That's the surest way uh, to, to resist it. 
So another problem uh, that's part of this fourth objection, that if, uh, in terms of absurd consequences, it means that there can be no moral progress and no moral reformers, right? So if in fact relativism is true, one of the, or two of the absurd consequences includes the, the, the impossibility of moral reformers. That is the idea that a society can have within it individuals who challenge popular practices that are unjust and unfair or immoral. And we've seen throughout history, people have been heroic in that regard, standing up against things like slavery and segregation and so forth, even when the general culture is resisting them, right? And what's typically happens in those cases is those reformers appeal to the very principles that he thinks the people in his society implicitly accept. Like so Martin Luther King Jr. gave uh, his famous speech uh, at, 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 uh, at the Lincoln Memorial. He appealed to some of the very theological beliefs that the segregationists that were listening to him accepted in their own faith, right? And he appealed to also the principles of the Declaration of Independence, right? A sacrosanct document in American history. It was an attempt to sort of draw people in by appealing to something that they already knew, but were suppressing in some way. So no moral progress or no moral reformers. And the other thing is you can't have moral progress, right? So when you think about not only cultures and civilizations, think about yourself, right? You like to think that over time you could become more virtuous, right? But that only makes sense if there is an end or a goal to which you are ordered as a person. And so the idea of moral progress, either in terms of civilizations or individuals, only makes sense if there's such a thing as an objective moral norm that we are actually moving closer towards. So that's, those are the problems with the argument from disagreement. So let me move on to the argument from tolerance. And let me remind us what that argument is. The, the argument is, um, because it is intolerant to believe that one's moral views are right and others wrong, it follows that moral relativism, the view that there is no universal objective morality, best establishes tolerance. Now, let, let, me, let me say that again. Some people argue that because it is intolerant to believe that one's moral views are right and others wrong, it follows that moral relativism, the view that there is no, there is no one universal moral objective morality best establishes tolerance. This was the thinking behind the once popular primary and secondary teaching technique called values clarification. Uh, this was something, it was sort of a big deal in the 70s and 80s. Um, and it was a way to teach kids. Uh, it was as controversial in the 70s and 80s in public education as issues about anti-racism are today uh, in the sense that you had a lot of parents objecting to what they thought was, and I think correctly in terms of values clarification, it was a way of teaching moral relativism. And they would give these, uh, they, they would tell kids there are no moral, not right or wrong moral answers, uh, but we can just sort of discuss them. And so they would give these like lifeboat scenarios, you know, you're on a lifeboat and there are eight people on the boat and you could only five can stay on the boat for, for uh, only five can survive. So you have to figure out who to throw off the boat. 
And each one of the people on the boat would be like of a different profession and background. And it was not a good way, I think, to teach ethics, uh, to be sort of begin with dilemmas, right? It's probably not a good idea to do that. And eventually it, it, it kind of faded away. But it was it, part of the thinking back then was to think you're right and other people are wrong is intolerant. You ought not to be intolerant. And so let's teach kids to not think they're right. <laughs> It's a weird way to teach ethics, right? So um, it would be like if somebody, this actually happened to me. I was uh, a couple of years ago, I was on a radio show and this guy called in and he said, the problem with you Beckwith is that you think you're right and everyone else is wrong. And I said, am I wrong in thinking that way? He said, yes. I said, well, you're just like me. You think you're right and I'm wrong. So let's have a conversation, <laughs> right? So there's, there's kind of no escaping this. So what's wrong with the argument from tolerance? First problem is the moral relativist seems to be affirming at least one absolute moral principle, tolerance, right? But in that case, she's no longer a relativist. To say that everyone ought to be tolerant is in fact to assert a universal moral principle. So it doesn't really establish relativism. Second, moral relativism need not lead to tolerance. So think about this way. Imagine there's a guy that says, um, yeah, you're right. Morality is just relative to culture. And I think my culture is the best. And so we're just like going to invade you and kill you. <laughs> right? Because after all, there are no universal moral principles and we have more power. Right? So, so in that case, relativism doesn't lead to tolerance at all. It leads to just the opposite. And so why suppose that relativism is going to give us tolerance? It could get you, you could get out of it a sort of nihilism, right? That it's, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's just about power, right? And yeah, you're right, uh, philosopher, there are no objective moral norms. That's why I can kill you. <laughs> and so it doesn't all have to lead to tolerance. Third, the practice of tolerance seems valuable because it establishes certain goods, such as living at peace with others and better understanding those with whom one disagrees. But these goods seem to be functioning as if they were part of some universal objective morality. So one of the virtues of, of, of that, one of the virtues that I think is necessary to sort of understand people with whom you disagree is to treat them with respect, right? And, and that comes under the un umbrella of tolerance. But if the purpose of tolerance is so that I can get along with others, well, that means that there's an objective good, namely getting along with my neighbors, right? Or you could say, well, it's good to listen to other people because it could turn out that you're wrong and they're right and you've now are better off. Or it could turn out they're wrong and you're right and now they're better off, right? Or it could turn out that you both walk away disagreeing, but you've built a friendship and friendship is good. <laughs> So all those things are part of tolerance and none of them have anything to do with relativism. In fact, they, are, they, don't, they can't be sustained with relativism. So that's the argument from tolerance. So moral relativists, I think, have their heart in the right place. Uh, they rightly recognize uh, differences of moral beliefs and practices between individuals and cultures while at the same time wanting to advance the cause of tolerance and understanding. But despite their good motives, the view they hold 
I think has many significant weaknesses. So now I want to talk about politics. Okay, how, so how to think about uh, morality, moral uh, morality and politics. So here, if you look at the, your study sheet, <laughs> I talk about the insights, uh, I list here the insights of Aquinas. So much of what I've said already is a kind of backwards way of getting you to see what Aquinas believed all human beings have written on their heart, the natural law. And for Aquinas, what he means by the natural law is that there are certain goods to which human beings are ordered for which the law and political institutions exist. Our political institutions and our laws are supposed to advance the common good. Now, some of these, Aquinas actually talks about the natural law uh, in, in a section of the Summa Theologica, which has been labeled the treatise on law. Uh, he talks about natural law in, in a very brief section, and he doesn't really say a lot. He, he, much of what we, much of the debate about natural law today is the result of scholars over the centuries after Aquinas writing about it. But he briefly mentions uh, in, in the, in, I think, is it question 94 of the second part of the second part of the Summa. Uh, I think I'm right about that. Uh, he mentions that, that we have certain inclinations as human beings. Now, what he means by an inclination is not like an instinct, but that we kind of have, uh, we're ordered towards certain goods. So for example, the uh, one is that, we, uh, that we, we're ordered towards the good of doing good. <laughs> so even when people do bad things, they try to justify it, which means they already understand that they are ordered towards the good. Uh, one of the other uh, goods is the preservation of life. And that comes out in our laws and political institutions that forbid homicide, right? And, and we, it, it's an inclination that has a moral aspect to it. If you, if you think about it, whenever something happens where, let's say you hear about, let, let's say of a, a famous person having taken their own life, what is the first thing that you say? You say, why did they do it? right? We don't say that if we discover someone's alive, right? We don't say, I saw Fred walking across the campus. Why is he alive? Or it's, we just assume that that's the good to which he's ordered. And he has sort of an obligation to make sure that he in fact sustains himself in some way and that he not harm others. Uh, the, the obligation to be, uh, or the, not the obligation that we're ordered towards the begetting and educating of our children, uh, this is another uh, part of the natural law, and that we know truths about the world and the divine. That is to say, we are or, we, human beings have a natural inclination to want to know the truth, and we also have a natural uh, in, uh, inclination to engage in what is called speculative reasoning. That is reasoning about ultimate things. That's where we get the hard sciences. That's where philosophy comes from, right? Ideas about God and morality. This is just part of human nature. If you look at any civilization or culture, these ideas are present and debated. And finally, to live in a community at peace with our neighbors. We're social beings. So the natural law for Aquinas is, to, to quote here from uh, Jay Budzieszewski, philosopher at University of Texas, 
is what we can't not know. So I'm going to, so, so this is where we, we can go back to the, the deep disagreements I mentioned earlier. So if you look at uh, uh, something like uh, the abortion debate, which I've already mentioned and some of these other debates, uh, what you find is that the disagreements, regardless of what side people are on, they appeal to the same goods in one way or another, or they try in some ways to accentuate certain goods and ignore others, right? But there's a recognition that they have to justify what they're believing or saying or doing. If you look at, uh, if you I don't know if, how many of you have ever read uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail, something that I teach a course at Baylor called Contemporary Moral Issues. And the first third of the course, we go over different styles of moral reasoning. And one of the essays that we read is by King. And one of the things he appeals to is the natural law because he's trying in that letter to justify a civil disobedience to a group of ministers who are sympathetic to his cause, but thought he went too far in violating the parade laws uh, in Birmingham. And in there, he says that there are different ways that a, a, a civil or criminal law can not be a law. And he says that's when it, when, it, when it either by application or by text violates the natural law. And what's the natural law? The natural law, according to the quick and easy way that, that King defines it as, he says, the natural law are those moral laws that advance or lift up human personality. Uh, one more example. Um, supposing you say something like this, it is morally wrong to intentionally tell a falsehood to someone who is entitled to the truth, or it's wrong to lie, right? So supposing somebody says it's wrong to lie, and then you come up with, people will come up with counterexamples, like, well, wait a second, what about, you know, you're in Nazi Germany and you're hiding Jewish people in your basement, right? And the, and the Gestapo comes to your door and they say, hey, are you hiding Jewish people? What do you do? You know, and you don't tell the truth, or in some way, at least I believe that's the case. Uh, so are you lying in that case? And so what'll happen is that philosophers will say, well, it, a lie, that's not a lie because the Gestapo is not entitled to the truth, right? Because you would be assisting them or cooperating with unjustified homicide. Now people, people can debate that, right? But the point is there's still a common vocabulary and moral grammar going on between the different sides in that debate. So I want to conclude by, I, conc I began with the, I gave it like seven or eight moral rules. I want to end now with what I call the 10 bogus rules. <laughs> I, I made these up a, about a year ago for an article I published in, a, in a, an academic journal. Uh, it was on, the, the article was on natural law reasoning. And uh, what I did is I began with these uh, these 10 bogus rules. Uh, you can add your own, but the point of the bogus rules is to draw out uh, what people seem to already know. So number one, parents may abandon their minor children without any justification, without any requirement to provide financial support. It is permissible for a city or state law to, post, to pass post-facto laws. Those are laws after the act, right? So you, you know, it's uh, city of Ashland passes a, uh, an ordinance that says uh, you can't sit in a room and listen to Beckwith. 
And what happens, and then after this, they pass it after the meeting and then they arrest you. That'd be a post facto law. The maximum punishment for first degree murder is an all expense paid vacation to Las Vegas. Any city or state may pass secret laws that the public cannot know. Anyone may be convicted of a crime based on the results of a coin toss. All citizens are forbidden from believing, propagating, or publicly defending the view that there is a moral law against which nations and individuals are measured. Your guilt or innocence in a criminal trial depends entirely on your race and not on a judge or jury's deliberation on legitimately obtained evidence. Government contracts are to be distributed based on family connections and bribes and not on the quality of the bids. Original parenthood is to be decided by a special board of experts appointed by the governor and not on whether one sires or begets the child. And finally, number 10, no citizen may believe, propagate, or publicly defend the view that there is a transcendent source of being that has underived existence, namely God. So the point of those bogus rules is that if you, like most people, hopefully everybody says, it's, it's wrong to decide uh, whether, we can't go through all of them. We're actually just noticed I'm pretty much at my time limit. Uh, so, uh, so supposedly let's pick one of them. Um, uh, anyone may be convicted of a crime based on the results of a, toy call, a coin toss. Um, we immediately see that as wrong. Why? Because we know already that that's unjust, that if you're going to convict somebody of violating a law, then you are obligated or that to present evidence and that person has an obligation or a right to defend themselves, right? And, or, or tossing a coin has nothing to do with guilt or innocence. So there's something almost irrational about it, right? The same is a post facto law. In fact, in our Constitu US constitution, there's a provision that prohibits post facto law. And it's interesting, there were some American founders that uh, that uh, that were nervous about including that because it would give people the impression if you write it down you could erase it <laughs> that it was so obviously wrong that we shouldn't write it down. <laughs> it's, it's we don't think that way today, but if you think about it, if you think that the only law is the positive law or what is written down and there is no natural law. Uh, yeah, it, it sort of makes sense to write it down, right? So there was a, there's a kind of, it was a resistance to writing everything down because you could, and that was actually one of the objections uh, to a, a bill of rights that, uh, that's, uh, that, or, that was too specific because it would imply that if it's not written in the bill of rights then you don't have the right, right? So, so let me just conclude by, 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 by saying that relativism, moral relativism, I think is a, is a failed position. It's flawed in many ways, and we went over that. But ultimately, any sort of politics, regardless of where somebody is in the political spectrum, can't be grounded in moral relativism. It has to, in some way, appeal to what uh, Robert Justice Robert Jackson appealed to in his remo opening remarks at the Nuremberg trials. Namely, there has to be a law above the law. Thank you. <laughs>